0: Last week, the White House started up COVID briefings again. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Ashish Shah. I'm the White House COVID-19 Response Coordinator. Uh, welcome to the COVID-19 uh, Response Team Update. Uh, These pressers the had been on hiatus since April. They've got a new look now, with the President's Pandemic Response Coordinator presenting in front of a giant screen, TED Talk style. He gave off the same upbeat vibe of a TED Talk, too, despite a sobering message. Uh, we have a pretty high degree of uh, immunity in our population. Um, but we're also seeing, at this moment, uh, a lot of infections across the country. Cases are on the rise, Dr. Jaw said. And Congress is not ponying up funding. If we don't get more uh, resources from Congress, what we will find in the fall and winter is we will find a period of time where Americans can look around and see their friends in other countries in Europe and Canada with access to these treatments that Americans will not have. At one point, the director of the CDC weighed in. She said already, right now, nearly a third of the U.S. is at a medium-high community transmission rate. That's the point where the government says to consider precautions like masking indoors. New York is one of the places where transmission is up. So I called Dr. Deepika Slawek from Montefiore Hospital up in the Bronx. I wanted to know how her job was changing as she stared down another wave. She says the weird thing is how much her job is staying the same.
1: In my clinical experiences, not a lot has changed over time in terms of like the amount of precautions that we take. I never really stopped wearing N95s. And I still wear like eye coverings and eye shields, and I'm still pretty careful. Like I always essentially when I'm seeing patients act as though I have the potential for being exposed to COVID even if my patients don't have any symptoms. But then when you go outside, is it different? Oh, for sure. I mean, like I go get coffee and I see like no one's wearing a mask inside the coffee shop. In other
0: words, New York has moved into a new normal. It's just a normal with a lot of people getting COVID. And when I say a lot, I mean nearly a 1,000 people are hospitalized in the city right now. And case counts have jumped 18%. Do those numbers scare you?
1: I mean, I think that, you know, I've had to kind of shift my way of thinking about this from being scared (laughs) and being terrified every time I feel like there's going to be a ramp up in cases to just trying to pump the brakes a little bit and look at
0: the bigger picture. Today on the show, Dr. Slawick has seen the worst of this virus. But now she's got a new approach to living with COVID. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. You work with immunocompromised patients, right?
1: Yeah, a good number of my patients are HIV patients. Um, And then other of my patients might have other immunocompromised too. You know, they might have cancer
0: or other things. When your patients see this high alert, what do they think? Does it feel different for them? Like a little more, I don't know, existential than it might for someone who doesn't have a condition like that?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I think for some of them, yeah. For some of my patients, they are, you know, I talk to them and they're like, don't worry about me. I stay inside my house all the time. (laughs) So I don't leave my house. Um, Oh my gosh. And like, I'm just, I'm just used to that by now. It's hard to know how to feel about that. I know. And they've developed this like form of resilience where they're just like, no, no, I'm, I'm cool with just staying at home. I've created my systems for that being the case.
0: Last week... Around the same time that the White House was ringing the alarm about rising COVID levels around the country, the mayor of New York was figuring out how he was going to respond to the fact that his city had moved to a high-risk level. And he held this press conference, which is kind of interesting to me. I'm wondering if you you had a chance to hear what the mayor has been saying over the last couple of days about COVID. I've seen a little bit of it, yes.
1: Good morning, Mr. Mayor. I wanted to ask you about... High
0: alert for COVID, the spread of COVID, and whether you're now prepared to be in state of mask mandate, specifically in schools, as the system recommends. Uh, no, and I am really, uh, I'm proud of what we are doing uh, and how we are not allowing COVID to outsmart us. We're staying prepared. I mean, it was interesting because... There was a little bit of a disconnect. Like he, during this press conference, he wore a mask. So he was clearly messaging by his behavior, you know, this is what we should be doing now. But he was asked, are you going to require masks indoors? Because his own guidance at this point says that that's what he should be doing. Like when New York moves to a certain level, this high risk level, it's one of the things that the city is supposed to do. Just say like, okay, indoors, everyone in masks. And he said no to that. Variants are going to come. If every variant that comes, we move into shutdown thoughts. We move in through panicking. We're not going to function as a city. And I wonder what you made of that decision as someone who's working in a hospital, sort of dealing with what happens when more and more people are getting sick.
1: Yeah. I mean, what the past two years has taught me is that these decisions are both public health decisions and political decisions. And I don't know anything about politics. Right. Like I, um, you know, I'm not I'm not like a political expert Um, from a medical standpoint. I'm telling my patients to wear masks indoors, You know, I think that a mandate is another strategy to doing that. Um, We've seen in some situations it works, and in other situations there might be a mandate and people don't follow it. So I think that that part of it's really a nuanced decision, right? Like, you know, you can make a mandate and you can direct people to do a thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it translates to exactly those
0: actions. Yeah. Well, it's like, how are you enforcing it? Exactly. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. And so like I could go around and tell um, people to do things all the time. And I have that experience clinically constantly where I tell my patients, like, you must do X, Y and Z, like take your medication every day and wash your hands constantly or whatever, you know, like whatever my guidance is. And the human behavior is really up to that individual. So I have to be realistic about that as a physician, and I have to say, okay, like this person has their own agency as an individual. So I have to arm them with the knowledge that they need to make that decision. And I'm not a parent, like I don't have kids, but sometimes it feels like <laughs> like the same strategy you would use with a teen with a teenager or like a child, right? Like you with have to patience. give them that knowledge. Yeah, you have to give them that knowledge so that they can make their own good decisions.
0: So it sounds like what you're saying is, the mayor's making the decision not to be like mean daddy <laughs> with his <laughs> constituents.
1: I guess I guess that's one way of putting it.
0: And there's value to that.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's there's different ways um, to to go about this, right? And I guess that that is one way. That's a strategy that you can take. And we have not we have yet to see how it will play out. But yeah, it is a strategy, you know, and, and I think that what I've learned to become very comfortable with, if anything, is that, you know, we have to kind of understand that we don't we don't know the future and that's OK. So we don't know the future. We know what the possibilities are. We know the possibility is that with this increase in cases, we're going to have more hospitalizations and
0: we have to be ready for it. You're very zen.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like what I've learned is that it, it just, it's more, um, it's more difficult to push back against it sometimes. I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't do things to try to stem it, right? So we don't do things like encourage masking, um, you know, I if I have patients, I have lots of patients that will send me messages or what have you, and say like, "Hey, I'm going to go do this thing. Do you think that's okay?" And I'll tell them like, based off of the risk level, no or yes. Like if they're, then at least we can have that that um, tool in our bag, and um, you know I can tell my patients to test frequently and to let me know if they get sick so I can get them antivirals, all of that. But I can't stop, like, the inevitable from happening. You know, if there's going to be a, an, a huge increase in cases, then I just have to be ready for that as a possibility. I can't just wish it away.
0: When we come back, if Dr. Slavik sounds a little sanguine here, she sees it differently. She says her approach is harm reduction. If you could advocate for the mayor to do, like, one or two things right now to address the spread of COVID, do you know what you'd tell him?
1: I mean, I think that perhaps he could try doing something like a lot of my colleagues and I do. So what we do is we try to tell people a, a range of things that they can do to reduce their risk. So I consider that a harm reduction policy, right? So here are things that you can do to reduce your risk of getting COVID. One of them, the most, the safest thing you could possibly do is wear an N95 all the time, be vaccinated, have your booster if you can, and um, test frequently. All of those things, right? We have many, many tools in our belt to help us reduce the risk of getting COVID. And then on top of that, make sure that we have adequate resources to treat people if and when they get sick. So make sure that people have access and know to get their, their Paxlovid or their other uh, monoclonal antibodies, all those things.
0: You know, people need to be aware that they can they can and should get those things. You brought up the idea of harm reduction in COVID, which I think is really interesting because if people are familiar with the idea of harm reduction, they're probably familiar with it in the frame of addiction. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious if you can lay out how the harm reduction frame works in addiction and how you would transfer that to COVID. Because people not, may not see those things as related, right? Mm-hmm. So how does – to explain how the harm reduction frame helps in both of those circumstances.
1: Yeah. So I'm – I have to say I'm a little um, biased because I'm an HIV and addiction medicine doctor. So I think about working within the harm reduction framework basically all the time. Um, And I sometimes like to apply it to my own life. So the way that I think about it is that it is virtually impossible for any of us to be perfect in our actions. So I think it's virtually impossible for even myself who's an ID who's ID trained, infectious diseases trained and a physician to do everything perfectly all the time to avoid getting COVID or getting sick. But what you can do is that you can you there are smaller measures that you can take um, in order to reduce that risk. So, for example, in an individual who's a frontline worker, for example. So say someone who works in a grocery store, they need to go to work. They, they can't not go to work because they have to live their lives and pay their bills and do all the things that they need to do. So they have to unfortunately take on a certain amount of risk in order to exist in their lives. But what they they can do to mitigate that risk, to reduce that risk or reduce that harm, is they could use masks that are appropriately medical grade. They can make sure that they're vaccinated. They can make sure they're hand washing and they can make sure that their workplace could at least try to make sure that there's adequate ventilation in their workplace. Those are things that can happen to reduce risk. It's not all or nothing. So like if three of those things can't be done, but one of them can be done, they should still do that one thing.
0: What I like about harm reduction is it's A little generous with both yourself and with other people. It's Mm -hmm. saying you're going to have other things happening in your life other than COVID. How do you make them safer? Harm reduction also it accepts that COVID's going to be around. It can't be stamped out, right? You can't like zero out this infection, which makes Mm -hmm. sense because so many scientists are talking about COVID as being something that people might get multiple times in their life, maybe even multiple times a year. Mm -hmm.
1: I think the thing about harm reduction is that, you know, I don't think that there's just from the nature of it, right? There's no doing it perfectly. (laughs) So if we could do a few things to try to reduce the risk when we know for sure that there are people who are not going to be able to follow the guidance 100%. If we could do anything to reduce the risk in that scenario, then we should do it. Right? So like, I think the thing for me that I find very helpful about thinking about things in that framework of harm reduction is that you don't wait until it's perfect to implement something. If you know that something is going to be helpful, you do it.
0: Hmm. Is it worth talking about the pushback to harm reduction? Like in the United States, do you feel like this idea that we accept that bad things will happen, we're just going to try to build bumpers around the bad things so that things are less likely to go disastrously wrong. Do you feel like that's been hard to implement? it's been so hard.
1: It's been so, so hard. I mean, I don't think, I think that the first time I learned about harm reduction, I was a master's student right out of college. And I was working for a syringe exchange program in Washington, DC, where it was not, we were not allowed to receive federal funds because it was... At the time, federally illegal to give federal funds for syringe exchange programs because the thinking was that you were enabling people's substance use. And I know that our country was um, founded on like kind of principles of being perfect, right? Puritanism and um, doing everything we can to be as perfect as possible. So it's, we almost have to like unlearn that before we can learn the idea of being okay. With things not being perfect.
0: Yeah. It's like the idea is to get to more perfect, you have to accept that it's not always going to be right.
1: Yeah. I mean, we know this from other health conditions, right? We know this from HIV. You don't get anywhere with HIV prevention unless you have tools like safe sex messaging and things like PrEP and conversations with people about having sex lives that are safe. Right. Or even or even, you know, injection drug use that is safe. You can't get to prevention without talking about those things.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because at the beginning of COVID, you could really hear how this idea of on and off 100 percent, you know, black or white was so infused in how we talked about COVID. Like it was all about flattening the curve, you know, and you, if you look at China, zero COVID.
1: Mm hmm. I hope that at some point we can start thinking about it in a way of just like we need to. We we need to just reduce risk for each individual. And if someone messes up, that's okay. We have we can treat them, or we can um, try to make sure that they don't get sick or the people around them don't get sick.
0: Dr. Slowik, I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course, thank you. Dr. Deepika Slowik is an assistant professor of medicine at the Montefiore Comprehensive Family Care Center. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Alana Schwartz, Mary Wilson, and Carmel Del Shad. We are getting a ton of help these days from Sam Kim and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hi. I'm at Mary's desk. In the meantime, I'll catch you back in this feed tomorrow.